Welcome to In Loving Recollection. This is your pal Brent. My very first job out of college was working for the Georgia Department of Labor as a program assistant for their business enterprise program. Having graduated with a degree in English, my goal was to eventually become a teacher, but certification would require some further coursework, and at the time, I was so burned out on school and just ready to do something else for a bit that wasn't so cerebral. My dad had worked for the Department of Labor my entire life and had helped me get summer internships at the Career Center in my hometown. I did enjoy those experiences for the most part and thought I'd possibly be happy working at one of the Career Centers in Atlanta. But honestly, I didn't really know exactly what I wanted to do. I just knew that I was supposed to get some kind of job because, you know, that's what you were supposed to do, according to my Protestant upbringing. And though I accepted this as my fate, I was not entirely enthusiastic about becoming a full-time employee. I was 23, and this final push into adulthood, something I had yearned for during much of my childhood, did somewhat scare the shit out of me. Plus, at that point... I had not always been a particularly great employee. In fact, just a year or so before, I had been fired from my campus job as a tour guide at Georgia State because I was not enthusiastic enough. But nevertheless, after interviewing at various career centers for a couple of months, I interviewed at the BEP office in Tucker, Georgia, and soon after was offered the job. I can still clearly picture my first day. I remember just sitting at my desk, staring out the window at my car, with a sense of unease circulating throughout my body. It would take me over a year before I managed to escape. I hated that job. Not because it was stressful or because I had awful co-workers. I mean, I did, but not all of them. I hated it mostly because it was so terribly boring. Time moved so slowly in that office. The majority of my tasks were often completed within the first hour of me arriving each day. So for much of the time, I would just sit there at my desk and stare off into space. I also played a lot of computer solitaire. I was always grateful for any opportunity to get out of the office and would gladly run errands for anyone who needed me to do so. One of my favorite things to do was to go to Publix to refill the jugs for the water cooler. I relished any chance to not just sit idly at my desk. In the mornings, I would sometimes keep driving, passing the office's parking lot, and pretend just for a moment that I was free. But to be fair, I guess that job in retrospect wasn't all that bad, because the sole purpose of the business enterprise program was to assist blind citizens working in the food service industry There was always an abundance of snacks in the office, so I did get to eat a lot of cookies. This was also the mid-aughts, which was an exciting time for online music journalism. All that spare time on my hands did allow for discovering new music. I had my websites that I would read daily, and by far my favorite at the time was Pitchfork. Now, I didn't necessarily agree with the harshness of some of the writing, 
but I was always appreciative of being turned on to new music that I may not have known about otherwise. And it was through one such review on that site that I'd be introduced to a record that would end up meaning a great deal to me during this particular time in my life. That record was Wild Mountain Nation by the Portland, Oregon band Blitz and Trapper. Released just a couple of months before I quit my job to take a teaching position in Meriwether County, that album, Acting as a Balm, was on constant rotation as my time at the BEP neared its conclusion. And though the end was in sight, those final weeks still continued to move at their usual unhurried pace, often needing to pass the time with something chaotic and free. I'd get out my headphones and put on Blitz and Trapper's 2007 record, Wild Mountain Nation. I'd stare out the window and I'd listen. This is the story of that record. This is Eric Early, founding member of Blitz and Trapper. first real label record that was made, Wild Mountain Nation. And I wrote all the music for the record and played almost everything. I even played drums on the majority of the songs, all the guitars, lots of weird old broken synthesizers. Um, yeah, that, was, that record was sort of me messing around with lots of weird old gear for the years of... Blitz and Trapper's Eric Early would be introduced to music at a fairly young age while growing up in the Pacific Northwest town of Salem, Oregon. It's about 35 miles south of Portland. Yeah, there's only one like real major road in Oregon. Like They all kind of run along that north-south road. And Salem's the capital, so it wasn't like a highly cultured place like Portland. It was more just sort of a your typical kind of smaller city. Real rainy, dark, um, not a lot of money there. <laughs> Just kind of basic, uh, you know, Americanville. It's funny because it's West Coast, so there's like always this sort of real hippie, kind of like like real hippie, like the hippies from the 60s. A lot of them ended up moving up to Oregon from, from SoCal. And so a lot of the like parents and people that were older are, were like either ex-hippies or were still kind of like hippies or bikers or that kind of lifestyle. And it was generally, you know, when I was growing up there, a very liberal kind of environment, more progressive than most places in that Interstate 5 corridor. Um, but then once you left the corridor, it turned into um, very non-progressive areas. <laughs> Musically, I grew up playing music from a really young age, playing like just, you know, Americana, bluegrass, like finger picking banjos, things like that. Because my grandpa and 
my dad and his brothers all played. My dad started actually teaching me certain things at the age of about five. But then in high school, grunge happened. So then we all were getting into, you know, these more alternative, you know, non-pop kind of music. And, you know, I had a band in high school. and um, The only band, actually, that was in the high school. <laughs> so, like, there was a lot of opportunities to, like, play music and do art and just, like, be a, a creative type. And that's really what me and my friends were. We were, like, the creative types at the school. After graduating from high school, Early would attend college in Georgia for a short time before returning to Oregon. And it is upon returning that he would begin to experiment with home recording. I went to this little Presbyterian school called Covenant College up on Lookout Mountain, right at the northern border. Yeah, right by Chattanooga. I wanted to get really far, far away from where I grew up. And REM was always my favorite band in high school. So I went and visited Athens and I was like, oh, maybe I'll just go to school over here. You know, REM was probably the reason, <laughs> the, the biggest reason, <laughs> which is funny to say. So I went to Georgia when I was 18. And when I was 19, I moved back home and my dad bought me a four track cassette deck. And so when I was 19, I started recording all kinds of stuff in my parents' house with that. And ultimately, that's the same four-track deck that I recorded Wild Mountain Nation and a fur with. It was an old um, Yamaha. It was just a like a cassette, you know, eighth-inch cassette tape. You'd stick in there and you got four tracks and you could bounce a few times, but the more you bounce, the worse it sounded. Eventually, Early would relocate to Portland, Oregon, arriving shortly before the city's long-standing and fertile music culture would gain widespread national attention. And I started going to college in Portland and then moved up there shortly after. And I studied uh, math and physics there for three and a half years in Portland, just living there. And I was studying painting initially, and then I moved to math and physics. So I did a lot of painting, and then I did the STEM thing for a while. In the late 90s, when I moved there, it was still pretty, like, just lots of, like, really tiny shows, house shows, and a few venues that came and went. But there wasn't any real, I, I guess the Dandy Warhols were probably the biggest band in, in the city at that point. And I definitely went to their shows. And then Elliot Smith, as well, was still there for a little bit before he moved to New York. And I would see Elliot around sometimes. And I probably saw Elliot like five or six times at like 300 capacity venues, you know. <laughs> and so, yeah, there was just a ton of really good music and almost no industry, which is kind of cool. Like, there was no record industry, but there was tons of cool bands. And the whole early 2000s was that for me. In 2000, Early would form the band Garmin Bosia, which would include Salem musicians Brian Cook, Michael Van Pelt, Drew Lockery, and Eric Mantier, as well as Marty Marquis, who Early had met during his brief stint in Georgia. Eventually, the band would change their name to Blitz and Trapper, and in 2003, released their self-titled debut full-length. The band's second album, Field Rex, which, like the first record, would be self-released, would arrive the following year.
those were written and recorded over a bunch of years. We never had a record deal, so it was more just like us making stuff just for fun, to be honest. Field Rex was like a notable record. We had our friend Matt Wright, who's kind of acting as publicist, and so he had a few connections. So he like put it in the hands of some press folks. Like I think it got reviewed by um, Pitchfork or whatever, but it wasn't like he could go buy it at a store. In those days, I mean, there wasn't really like a self-release. Like you couldn't really self-release things. You could, but your distribution was really minimal. There was no Spotify. There was no like digital distribution. So it didn't really have the same meaning as it does now. So like the first two records, like they didn't really ever get released um, until Spotify came around and we put them up on Spotify. We just didn't have a record deal, so we didn't have any way to put them out. As per his usual practice, Early would work on material at the band's practice space, housed inside the former home of the Sally Mack School of Dance in downtown Portland. Eventually, much of this material would morph into what would become the band's next record. The way I used to operate is I would usually just be up late in our like studio space that we rented. I basically would just work there all night. I wasn't really living anywhere at the time, so I would like just work there all night and then sleep a little bit on the couch. They had taken this really old building. It was originally the Telegraph Building for Portland. That was like, you know, over 100 years ago or whatever. I, I don't know what it was between being the Telegraph Building and being Sally Max at the School of Dance, but <laughs> it still had the Sally Max School of Dance insignia on the, the window as you came in the front entrance, but it was old and like it had obviously been defunct for like at least 20 years by then. Half of it, they had turned into studio space, and then the other half was, like, the roof caved in, and it was just, like, full of giant trash bins full of rainwater. <laughs> Our studio space leaked pretty bad. I had one wall just, like, had buckets all at the base of it because it leaked. We were up above ground, actually. The only reason it leaked is because it had these giant 100-year-old, like, floor-to-ceiling windows that were so old, and they just were single pane, and just water came through them. Yeah, to call it like a studio space is a reach. It was more just like a squat that had power. It was a lot more least Scratch Perry than anything else. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It was like that. I mean, we turned it into our own. Like, it was a crazy place to record. Like, we had all kinds of crazy instruments. We found this old piano that someone had, like, dumped off in the alley, and we rolled it inside the studio. And that's what I recorded all the pianos on, was that it was like an upright. There was just all this weird old gear in there that I just was constantly tinkering with and recording with at night because it was quiet, you know, in the middle of the night. I imagine the way those songs came about is I would probably just write a song in like a half hour, you know, and then start recording it and then probably leave it and maybe start another song the next day and record some of it and then work on, you know, I would probably just had a batch that I worked on all kind of simultaneously. I don't know that I like wrote one and then wrote another. Yeah, in those days I was just always making songs recording writing just all the time so there was another record that i made kind of contiguous with wild mountain nation and so i basically had two records and then the song wild mountain nation got interest and so i kind of was like oh i guess i'll focus on that record or whatever back then there was just so much material i had laying around i just would be like oh okay i guess this is the record these songs all fit together you know and in the end he made a record.
Wild Mountain Nation opens with the loose and energetic Devil's a Go-Go. With its unorthodox and somewhat robotic-like rhythm, the song thrills as it skirts closer to the edge, yet miraculously never falls off. The track's unabashedly proud display of chaos with a pop sensibility expertly sets the tone for a record overflowing with adventurousness, eclecticism, and just the right amount of weirdness. I think just the energy of it just made me think it was the first track. The way that it intros, it feels like the beginning of something. And so I think that's probably what I was feeling. I don't think I ever made any decision about that in terms of like a potential listener, because at the time we had, there was no listeners, you know? I think I was just like following my body's cues at that point without knowing it. Like, oh, this feels like the beginning of something. So let's start here. I had like five or six old Casios. So much of like what we think of as modern like mariachi Mexican music is just a guy hitting a button on a Casio. And I think that's what I did on that part is I just like was using Casio tones and then the guitar is just me doing like a Spanish style guitar riff for a second. Yeah. Like virtually all the weird kind of falling apart keyboard sounds you hear is all SK1 because I had two of them. I had an SK2 as well, um, among other things. That was a go-go. I tracked the guitars first, I think, and I was just like fucking around with riffs, you know, like just late at night with my old red guitar, that old Epiphone that I used to have. Yeah. And, you know, at the time I was more interested in just like getting cool tones. And then once I got a guitar I liked, I would start just messing around with riffs. I mean, I don't know, man. I wasn't like just sitting down to write songs. I was just, it's like a whole headspace that I was in where it, like there was just it's just like this weird nihilistic place I was in where I wasn't really tethered to anything. I didn't live anywhere. I didn't have a job. I wasn't doing anything. I was just like sort of just messing around with music gear that I had been messing around with for, you know, 10 years at that point. And so I was really good at just like creating songs on a four track, just at will, you know? So I think with that one, I just recorded the guitar riffs and there's all kinds of weird, like, the time signature like fluctuates in these weird ways and like I play these weird riffs and the band drops out and like that was all just me messing around on a guitar and then going back and playing to it. So like when I went back to drum on it, because I was the one that recorded the guitar, I knew like the weird timing things I was doing, so I just played to it and was able to follow it because like I had done it. As opposed to like trying to show someone how to do it or trying to like trying to map it out and like be like this is how this goes. It was the opposite of that. It was me just like randomly throwing out a single take of something and then playing to that single take. Generally, the whole record, or at least the stuff that's looser, are single takes. Every instrument is. So I would do a single take of a guitar and be like, oh, I like that. Jump on the drums, do a single take of the drums. And then same thing with everything else. And maybe the vocals, I'd do a couple more. But for the most part, that record is like almost everything you hear is a first take which is why it has this weird, loose, live sound to it. I wasn't, like, stopping to think, like, oh, does this work or does that work? I was just doing it and then just, like, moving on. And I'm not really even a drummer, which is why a lot of the drums on the record are just so angular and weird. It's just me, like, doing whatever felt right at the time and never going back to fix it.
The undeniable pop gem that is the album's title track is Blitz and Trapper's warp take on 70s classic rock and imagines a world in which one of the forefathers of 90s indie rock is Steve Miller. I guess I would say of the songs that were written like on acoustic guitar, like that one, those were definitely more like, oh, I wrote this song, I'm going to record it. You know what I mean? <laughs> but like I would have done the acoustic guitar first without a click. And that was the thing too with that record. I never used clicks with that record because I didn't have one. Uh, I did have a click, but it was like an analog click, so it was not solid. It wasn't a digital click. And I don't think I use it that often. So even a song like Wild Mountain Nation that is prescriptive, like it's a song that I wrote, not just a bunch of riffs that I was doing. Even that, it wasn't like me and a drummer sat down and played it together over and over till we got it right. It was just me like writing a song and probably 10 minutes after writing it, I record the guitar in one take and don't look back and then just go from there. So like that song was prescriptive in a sense, but then once I got that first guitar track recorded, I didn't go back and change anything. I just started layering. So that's kind of how that one was probably from the best of my memory created. And I think that's the title track because it is sort of lyrically the like soul of the record and the record is you know it's like this post-apocalyptic kind of reality which i've written about a lot like a lot of my records early on especially were like this like proto-biblical apocalyptic perspective on america because like the lyrics of that song are about a future earth where civilization's been toppled in some way and all these tribes are coming together to create a new nation out of the ashes of whatever has come before in a way it's like me (laughs) you know like basically riffing on you know the israelites coming out of egypt or something but thinking about it in terms of a post-western reality kind of thing because i grew up in like you know conservative christianity with all these biblical stories and imagery and all the magic witchcraft involved in a religious document and like i think that that informs that record a lot so like the wild mountain nation really is in a sense this future version of the exodus or something it's basically a record version of a graphic novel because each song has like ties with every other song and it's all the same world and yeah it like creates this picture of like yeah a post-civilization group of people and what that looks like like my main influences growing up were pavement and rem you know so like lyrically I'm leaning more towards like Michael Stipe and these really obtuse, weird lyrics where you're just like, what is he talking about? And then the guitars, the, the actual writing itself is more like Steve Alchemist. But then the riffs get in there because of Joe Walsh, basically. Joe Walsh was probably my most heavy influence as far as the riffs. Because I was really into James Gang. Yeah, those were connected to touch stuff.
its concise arrangement and catchy melody, the track Futures and Folly is folk rock coexisting in a world of thrift store synthesizers. I was using synths as like a joke almost. I was like writing these songs and then using the synths to kind of like poke fun at the songs themselves. Synth tones I'm using, literally using children's toys. And at times I actually use kids' toys in some of those songs as sound effects. So yeah, I'm like just sort of like poking fun at the, the edifice of classic rock while using the same tropes at, at times. It's like graffiti, You're basically just like defacing edifices of yesteryear, you know? kind of like a weird twisted love song or something. I don't really know what that's about, honestly. I think it was me just like dwelling deep in my subconscious and just like letting things fall out, you know. That one was written on acoustic guitar, so I definitely had like the chord runs, the arrangement. Um, and then I started stacking the synths and the weird noises and guitars on it. Yeah, I think it was probably constructed the same way Nation was. Futures of Folly really is just like kind of a Beatles song almost, you know. With the tonal palette of pavement and you know casio keyboards it's like if you were to pull the beatles forward in time like you know 80 years and put them in a post-apocalyptic scene and they're playing a bunch of broken old keyboards and guitars and stuff The genre-defying Miss Spiritual Tramp highlights the record's strong and eclectic track sequence, which seamlessly transitions from the fairly straightforward indie pop of Futures and Follies to an overdriven guitar freakout, complete with a harmonica-led hoedown. I wasn't just using a 4-track, I was also using like an old PC laptop editing on Cool Edit. So I would have recorded the riffs and stuff, thrown it in there and been like, you know, I want a hole in the middle of this where just weird shit happens. So I would just go in and just pull the volume down and construct whatever I want and then pull the volume back up, you know what I mean? So that, that's what I did on that. Yeah. Just literally like, like Beck used to do in his weird recordings in the early days where he would just chop a piece of the song out, put something else in there. The Spiritual Tramp, you know, is 
me leaning completely into just the anarchy of modern overdriven music. Yeah. <laughs> I think its original name was Miss Spiritual Tramp USA or something like that. I think it was just me like pulling scenes, you know, like I'm writing up a script for some Hollywood hack, you know, lays out as like just these weird scenes of kind of like violence and sexuality and just kind of like all the grossness of the U.S., kind of like all in one heavy, dirty, guitar-laden thing. The guitars just sound like bacon frying and like all kinds of weird things. Following Miss Spiritual Tramp is the chaotic instrumental Wolf and Warp of the Quiet Giants hymn. That one was another one where I was just probably riffing and just played a bunch of guitar riffs and kind of strung them together into a song and realized, oh, I could turn this into something. And then started layering and, you know, it just morphed into what it became without any real plan. I think Drew named that one. I mean, it was probably some weird inside joke that I don't even know. That's <laughs> a mystery. <laughs> I mean, those days are such a mystery because it was like such a different time than now. It's crazy. Think about in Portland, it was just such anarchy all the time and just kind of like every day was different. You never knew what was happening at any given moment. Things and people and places and drugs and situations and music. (laughs) I don't know. And I think that song really embodies that feeling. You know, that's probably the one song that's like a soundtrack, literally a soundtrack to like the way my life proceeded at that point. Inspired by Early's childhood obsession with science fiction, the driving track Sci-Fi Kid is an effortless mixture of indie rock with 80s and 90s video game music. What I could say about that song is that, like, growing up, I was, like, super into science fiction. I was, like, a super nerd, you know? Kind of. In certain ways, I was a nerd. I was just, like, really into whatever I was into. And I was really into science fiction. Like, I read so much science fiction that I, I flunked math twice because I would read science fiction during math class. And, like, it wasn't like I couldn't do math because later on I did math in college and, like, got straight A's and was going to get a math degree. 
But it was just that I was so obsessive. And I've always been really obsessive, especially in my younger days. But I was just obsessed. Like, I would just read Isaac Asimov all day long for, like, weeks until I finished it, and then I'd move on to something else, you know. So, like, the sci-fi kid is me, obviously. And I guess it's sort of just, like, me addressing the fact that all of my writing, and I think all the writing of everyone at this point, is completely and unadulteratedly affected by science fiction literature. And I think that all literature now is science fiction literature. You know, unless you're, like, going back and doing historical fiction or something. But, like, now I think there's always elements of science fiction because the sciences have infiltrated our lives and technology to such a degree that, like, it's just everywhere now. We just take it for granted. I think at that time I was sort of somehow subconsciously aware of this fact and kind of just, like, leaning into it. Like, hey, this is pulp. This was referred to as pulp, but the reality is, is that this is what all writing is now. We are in, like, the science fiction era of reality in the West. I mean, we are. We're cloning humans and... I mean, we're doing just, we're basically doing all the stuff that was in all the books I read as a kid, basically. We're designing AI, we're designing robotic dogs, you know, we have rovers on Mars that are just taking pictures of the craziest shit, like, we're, like, probably going to crack fusion in the next 20, 30, 40 years. Like, like, science fiction is just fiction now. But basically, it's based on reality, you know? Science is just reality at this point. <laughs> it's a crazy thought. And I also think at that time, I was, like, like, we talk about the world of that record that I kind of was, like, creating. And I think in my mind, I was like, you know, in this post-apocalyptic world of this record, like, what about the group of people that's, like, let's leave Earth. Let's try to get away from this shit, you know? Because in the song, it's like, they've got a spaceship, and they're just, like, they've taken off in the ship, and they're just partying. And you get the feeling, like, they don't make it. Like, they, whatever, maybe they get sucked into a black hole or something. But the song itself gets sucked down into this, like, digital reality that's just like ones and zeros basically yeah that's like casios multiple casios probably a moog in there too i had a juno i believe at that time too it was like partially broken you would do some really weird stuff because it was partially broken. <laughs> Someone just gave it to me back then. They're like, hey, I'm not using this. You want to hang on to it? I was like, yeah, sure. Campfire Jamboree Vibes of Wild Mountain Jam is a brief interlude that further develops the landscape of the record's post-apocalyptic narrative. It's like me recalling the guitar parties that my family would have, my dad's family would have. He came from a huge family that in East LA that originated in Missouri Ozarks, and so like they always played music together, harmonica and guitars. So that's like kind of me envisioning that 
because I was really little by the time that, that stopped happening. So I just have vague memories of that stuff. But it's me kind of envisioning that kind of hoedown. And then it also is like, it's like that world that's created with the record. It's like you zoom down into it and suddenly you're like in it with them hanging out like around the fire or something. That's kind of the way that I think I imagined it. Continuing the album's drastic shifts in genre is the ethereal menace of Hot Tip, Tough Cub. I was super into Sonic Youth my whole life. That's probably the closest I lean into like really just emulating them completely. Is like that song. It's very Sonic Youth. The stuff I grew up on was like Sister, um, Evil, Washing Machine. That was one of my favorites. And I think that song pulls a lot from Washing Machine, which came out in like 93 or 4. And then um, Daydream Nation. Like those are all the, the 80s and early 90s records of theirs that I love so much because they're so... I mean, I think that those, like the feeling that I get when I listen to Wild Mountain Nation, that record, is the same feeling I get when I listen to like Sister or Washing Machine, one of those old Sonic Youth records. Because their records have that feeling of like, everything's falling apart, all the gears breaking, but they don't care, they're just like, in like this tantric reality, like trance kind of thing, just making a song, I don't know. And I've seen Sonic Youth a bunch of times, like five times or something. I always just got that feeling when they play it. It's like, oh man, these guys don't give a fuck, <laughs> you know? And like that song, the uh, Hot Tip Tough Cup, kind of like that. Like that was me, again, just sitting, dicking around with a guitar with some really crazy sounds. And like, not even writing a song, but writing like these weird pieces that were modulated. Like, it's almost like a couple different songs. They're like movements. And Sonic Youth was very much about these movements. Like any one of their songs could move into something totally different. And suddenly you're in another song and you're like, what is going on? And so, yeah, that's kind of like the vibe on that. I could never even tell you what the lyrics are about. The lyrics are almost like this weird pulp and pornographic kind of like just dark weirdness. I've heard a lot of pulp of all kinds, like Western pulp. Yeah, Lou Lamore, Zane Gray, those guys. Um, and then also into the more like hard-boiled detective stuff, Raymond Chandler, Dashiell Hammett, stuff like that. Max Brand, I guess that's more Western. Um, super into all that pulp stuff. I mean, it all comes back to like hard-boiled, loner, 
lone wolf kind of detective -y kind of stuff. Even the Western stuff is that. And like when I think about Dashiell Hammett, he's like one of my favorite. And he's not even a pulp writer. I consider him like a real writer. Like he's he wrote really amazing books. But they're all, you know, detective stories. And they're really dark and sinister. And I guess I never thought about it before. But yeah, a lot of that stuff makes its way into my writing, I think. Maybe it comes from from living in like a super dark, super rainy, cloudy city for so long, you know, where it's like most nights you go out, it's raining and it's dark and there's weird shit going on all around you. And I think that those kind of books always resonated with me. It kind of is like the overlay of all the music on that record, that kind of vibe. Because at the time I don't have a car, I don't have anything, I'm just like on the street all the time. The Green King Sings is a dynamic number that excites as it narrowly escapes going off the rails, evoking a sense of wild abandon through its layers of guitars and keyboards atop Early's unique and expressive drumming. Well, I mean, I had like basic techniques, but when I'd record a song, I would just like go deep into my subconscious and just let my body like just act. So I wasn't like, oh, I'm gonna do a fill here or there. I would have headphones like, latched to my head with like a scarf around it so they were on tight you know? and then I would hit record walk over to the set sit down and then just boom go because like it wasn't like I had someone hitting record I would be over there hit record I'd have to walk 15 feet to the drum set sit down and then I'm, I'm in it you know so I would just like sit down close my eyes and then wham I'm in the song and so I would just let my body do it you know and I'd maybe do two takes sometimes more it probably depended on the song but yeah it was literally just me like following my body Again, it was another sort of like me envisioning after civilization, the entire like biome of life just like bouncing back, you know? Because like humanity acts as like a damper on the rest of biological life. And so to pull that damper away, like we saw in COVID or something, the rest the rest of the world just, just oozes on in and just like bounces back. And to me, that's what I was writing about with The Green King is like, there was this science fiction novel, I forget who wrote it. It might have actually been Frank Herbert. It was called The Green Mind or something, or The Green Brain or something. And so I was thinking like of nature itself as like the king of all kings. And like once humans go extinct, it just takes over again. And just plant life is king again. It's just like so aggressive all the time. And it's aggressive even with us damping it down. It's always pushing through our feeble attempts at control. And it's humbling because we're tiny and we're short-lived. You know? The plants are they're in it for the long haul. Loving in my summertown Trees that love the wind by day 
The delicate folk of Summertown contains a thoughtful arrangement built around an arpeggiated finger-picked guitar pattern on which subtle textures of keyboards and backing vocals are dispersed sparingly. As the track gradually climbs, melodica, as well as some truly understated drumming, are added to the mix, creating the ideal sonic space in which early sweetly nostalgic lyrics can exist. That song's just about Portland in the summer. Back then, there was no better place to be in the summer than Portland, because it was mild, there was nobody there, there was no tourism or anything. And it was just like house parties every night, barbecues every day, just like drinking all week. Everybody worked part-time because it was so cheap there. Yeah, it's like my ode to Portland. Summertime in Portland back in the, in the 90s and the aughts. <laughs> As we near the end of the record, we get the gritty, glam rock swagger of Murder Babe. You're such a big star. Again, there's like some more of those Joe Walsh riffs in there. Similar in ways to The Green King, it's another just riff-oriented song, kind of, with, with lots of weird breaks and solo weirdness. Because, again, I was just recording my guitar at first, the electric, and just like creating whatever structure came to me at the moment. It's like a pavement glam kind of song with more of the pulp imagery. It's almost literally like 
it's a murder song. It's like a pulp story or something. <laughs> but at the same time, it's really playful. It's not that dark. It's just kind of like manic and weird. Yeah. The album's penultimate track, Country Caravan, is a cosmic country number whose spirited communal feel belies the fact that this music, like that on all of Wow Mountain Nation, is mostly being performed by one person, which really speaks to Early's well-honed skills as a producer and engineer. And by the way, in case you were wondering, this is actually my favorite track on the album. There's not a single bad thing about it. songs kind of like indicative of where I was going musically with the next record with Fur that more strummy acoustic you know with the sort of country imagery I don't know that song definitely could have like been on the next record or something because the next record was not crazy manic noisy like Wild Mountain Nation was and so yeah that's kind of like this place where it's like oh this is like more of a stripped back distilled version of my song it's very simple it's like the scene in the movie where you see everybody like traveling, you know, to like the final destination. You know, it's the country caravan. And it, but it's a post-apocalyptic caravan. They're like leaving the city because the city's destroyed and they're heading out to found something else or who knows what's coming. No one knows. But the country caravan is the remnants of who's left and they're moving outwards. If you've ever wondered, which I'm sure we all have at one time or other, what after the gold rush would have sounded like had Neil Young recorded it on a cheap four-track cassette recorder, then look no further than the album's final track, Badger's Black Brigade. That song is like the epilogue of the record, basically. The lyrics are like, there's a time that's coming, like a great river queen. And I start talking about this like apocalyptic world that you've been in for the whole record, basically. And so I'm kind of like outlining it. And the Badger's Black Brigade is like this cleanup crew or something that's gonna come through and like, to me, when I was writing the record, it was like this dark force. Like if you've ever read Stephen King's The Stand, there's like the two forces, the opposing forces of good and evil kind of. And so in a sense, I was like, well, there will be this power that comes through and just sweeps through the planet, like cleansing it in a way, 
but in a way where they're just killing everything. And like the remaining people will have to deal with that, you know. And I, I can't remember what the very last line of that song is. It's something like um something won't save you. What do I say? It's like it kinda like ties the whole story or world together in a way. The last born men and this world won't save you. That's right. That's dark shit. <laughs> but I think ultimately like throughout my life and my career, I think I've always been obsessed with this idea of extinction. That's kind of what I'm saying there. Like the last born man, like it's the end of humans, you know, and the beginning of the rest of life. And I think that's followed me. Like my newest record is the same way. It's like me getting in touch with this humility that comes from realizing that humanity is not forever. We've only been around for a split second, you know, and at some point we will either, we will probably go extinct. I mean, the odds are really high that we will go extinct, <laughs> you know? We have this idea that we're somehow in control of things and that we, because of our cortex, we like, can somehow control the world and our lives and things or something. We think we're sentient. We think we're smarter than the animals. We think all these things that could very well all be false. And so, like, the fossil record, to me, is like the great teacher, you know? And to me, the fossil record tells me that at some point, there will be the last born man, and this world won't save you. You know what I mean? It tells us 99.9 .9 of all species have gone extinct, period. And we're no different, you know? So in a sense, the humility born out of that reality is like kind of like the thing that I'm really most interested in. When it comes right down to it, you know, is the cosmic humility. For the album art, Early would create a collage that would use images related to the record's lyrical themes, such as cowboys, a spaceship, and elements from the natural world. I gathered twigs to make the text, and I glued them onto the art. The cover is just collage art that I made. And I remember I scanned it at the college, because I didn't have a scanner, obviously. I mean, I didn't even have a place to live. I like had all this crap in my backpack, and was kind of piecing it together. Took it to the college, which I wasn't enrolled in anymore. <laughs> and used my old account to like scan it in. And that became the cover. And the inner images and stuff were all drawings of mine, different collage art and stuff, yeah. While Mountain Nation is released on June 12, 2007, through the band's label, Lidker Cow Limited. Following its release, the record would begin to garner some unexpected attention. Me, I have no idea what happened even to this day. Like, for that record to get Best New Music on Pitchfork back then was like, I mean, that was like winning the lottery in those days. Yeah, they had their pulse on a lot of really weird, cool music that most people would never have found otherwise, you know. I mean, that record, getting Best New Music, that launched our career, basically. We went immediately went on tour with The Hold Steady and then with Two Galants. And then Fur came out, which was way bigger. I mean, that was like 100 times bigger than Wild Mountain Nation. That was like a thousand times bigger than Wild Mountain Nation, you know? But that first push from Pitchfork was really what got us touring and got me able to live in an apartment again and things like that. <laughs> it was a very weird, weird time. I don't think I was really consciously cognizant of all that was going on because I was still so, like, wrapped up in my, like, street world of, like, just complete anarchy and just... I don't even know what I would call my life back then. It was just... 
I mean, most people wouldn't opt into a life like that where you just never know what's going to happen next. You know what I mean? But, like, that's the kind of life that I thrived in back then, directionless. But also very obsessive. Like, I was obsessed about my music and about my recordings and about the narrative and stories that were going on in my mind, you know? And so, like, that record is just, like, a product of that obsession with all these various things that we talked about coalescing in this really fucking weird record and fur too honestly i was making fur while i was making wild mountain nation so like i made wild mountain nation was still kind of working on it started dabbling in some of these other songs and like country caravan like i said kind of led to me starting to work on these more folk oriented songs and that's where the song fur black river killer these songs that came later it's kind of what they came out of was that sound with like country caravan summertown that kind of more folk oriented sound that i was getting but it was the same process. It was the same four track with a laptop kind of process in my old studio, you know, place. At that point in my life, the only thing that meant anything was if I could find like some half smoked cigarettes and some change in a fucking telephone booth. Following the relative success of Wild Mountain Nation, the band would sign with the legendary independent label Sub Pop Records, who would release their critically acclaimed fourth record, Fur in September of 2008. Since then, Early has continued a steady output of Blitz and Trapper material, with the band's most recent record, Holy Smoke's Future Jokes, being released in the fall of 2020. And as for his feelings on Wild Mountain Nation, Early still feels a connection to the music he made over a decade ago, and is grateful for what it symbolizes in regards to his life in music. Like I said, it's it's something that just coalesced out of all kinds of obsessions of mine. And those obsessions have continued, I think, in certain ways to this day, but more than any other record, that one really distills like the world that I lived in in my mind and to a degree still live in. So like now when I listen to it, I hear echoes of my past self really heavily, but I also feel a connection to it still, you know. 15 or whatever years later because we never really change entirely you know we can become more aware of ourselves and our traumas and our bodies but ultimately those things will always be with us in some fashion like echoes and so to me that album is like an echo of a past self but an echo that continues to to go forward in a way Um, and it's the thing like i said that began my career what whatever that means but it was a turning point for me in my life, you know, that shot me off on this totally different trajectory than I ever would have probably thought would happen, you know. Like, I try to think what would have happened if I hadn't made that record or if it hadn't been heard by whoever. What would I be doing? I don't know. Kind of scary to think about sometimes, but, yeah, I don't know. Thanks for listening to In Love and Recollection. A very special thanks to Eric Early for speaking with me about this very special record. You can stream and buy Wild Mountain Nation and more from Blitz and Trapper at blitzandtrapper.net or on the various streaming platforms. Seek this stuff out. It'll make you a better person. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter or at inlovingrecollection.com. We'll see you next time.
we'll get through this.